1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with the author of The Prescription to Prison Pipeline, The Medicalization and Criminalization of Pain. How are you doing today?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me on here, Deidre. Uh, My name is spelled or pronounced uh, Smirnova, uh, Michelle Smirnova, but I'm really excited to talk with you today.
1: Great. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Absolutely. Um, So my name is Michelle Smirnova. I'm an associate professor of sociology and affiliate faculty with the Race, Ethnic and Gender Studies Department at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Um, I, my background is in medical sociology and also in the sociology of resistance, um, and collective movements. And so I, I kind of was approached about this project, uh, when I, uh, joined uh, the University of Missouri, um, a faculty member in the criminal justice department, know that I taught quite a bit about um, issues related to criminalization, um, but that I hadn't done research in that area before. And she approached me because she had been doing research on uh, methamphetamine um, and particularly women um, who cooked um, or sold meth. and. In her interviews, she heard um, quite a bit about uh, prescription drugs, uh, about this is something that people should be paying attention to. Um, This professor's name was uh, Jennifer Owens. And um, so we set off on this research together because she knew that I did a lot of research on medicalization and medical sociology, and there was this sort of intersection at play. Um, So we set off to... uh, do this research um, sort of as people were starting to pay attention to what people often refer to as the opioid epidemic Um, and sort of came at it from this lens of um, here are these substances that people are using um, in ways that might be problematic. And we started interviewing um, people who were incarcerated and as I was hearing these stories, um, I was hearing the stories of people who were using all sorts of prescription drugs, not limited to opioids, and in ways that were not unlike the way other people use prescription drugs, um, who may have uh, the oversight of a doctor, may have a prescription um, for those um, drugs. And so seeing sort of this blurry line um And also how they had internalized this idea that, well, I'm necessarily abusing these um, and that I have an addiction. I have an addictive personality. Um, Yet they were describing how they were using these substances to manage trauma, um, abuse, um, to help them on the job or at home um, in ways not unlike um, a lot of the general public who uses uh, prescription drugs and so this kind of got at a lot of the issues um, that I decided that was really important to write a book about, about um, the medicalization of our society, um, the criminalization of our society, and who is more likely to be criminalized for the similar similar behaviors that other people are engaged in, and how... Um, our healthcare system and carceral systems are um, much more intertwined than people are led to believe. Um, So that's how I kind of stumbled into this work um, and then tried to make sense of it all in the book that I wrote uh, that we're discussing today.
1: Now, in your chapter, I think it was one, you talk about the World Health Organization and their mandate of freedom from pain, and they say it was a universal human right. Can you tell us about this?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, I talked a little bit about this um, universal human right because uh, it really centers this issue that a lot of these issues... um, involve a lot of well-intentioned people. Um, And so this universal right to protect people from pain is on the surface a really great right that people shouldn't suffer undue pain. Um, And I think part of this um, decree was oriented towards people in different medical settings um, or in the dying process that they should have the right to be free of pain. Uh, And so if there is access to um, medication that can alleviate some of that pain, that that should not be withheld from people. Um, But, one of the challenges of these um, sort of decrees is that it's it's offered, but there isn't the framework for what that looks like, um, and so. Um, as we know, in a consumerist market-based economy, that there will be people who come and fill that need and say, here, we can provide this for you. And that's precisely what happened in the United States um, in that pharmaceutical companies came to fill that gap um, and say that here we can offer um, a way to prevent pain um, and thinking of pain in sort of these limited terms of um, uh somatic pain, um, that can be treated with, uh, opioids. And, um, in fact, pain is, uh, as we know, very broad, um, thing that can be experienced on emotional levels and psychological levels and has structural, um, sources rather than, um, corporal sources. So um, it sort of reduced what pain is and how it should be treated. And we thought about it in these limited terms. And some of these limited terms are the way that we end up with the problems we have today. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I'm not sure if that was responding to your question appropriately. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Now, you give us examples, and you talk about a person by the name of Lindsay and how she really represented the prescription to prison pipeline. Can you tell us about that example?
0: Sure. Um, So... I open the book with the story of Lindsay, um, in part because her story, on um, the the face of it, we hear this, this story of experiencing a lot of pain um, and a lot of trauma um, that she experienced in her life. And um, it's surprising that she ends up uh, in a prison cell, which um, is where I end up interviewing her. Um, she grew up, uh, being diagnosed with leukemia at a young age. And so spent a lot of time in and out of doctor's offices, unclear, um, where, whether her life, um, would continue. Um, she had a really abusive father, um, who abused and terrorized everyone in their family. Several of her siblings were, um, removed, um, into foster care. Um, she remained in the care of, um, her father, um, which she didn't quite understand why. Um, and she really, she wanted to escape this life. Um, she ends up, um, finding, uh, falling in love, um, with this, uh, man. They end up having, uh, getting pregnant. Um, she's really excited to finally leave this situation. Um, and during that time she, um, uh, she ends up having her um kid moving out of the house um but then her her child's um heart isn't um fully developed ends up developing pneumonia and dying at 3 months um just devastating devastating um story and then her relationship falls apart um he ends up being abusive and Um, at all of these stages of her life, um, when she was young with leukemia, when she has um, her child um, in response to the abuse, she's prescribed um, all sorts of medication to manage depression, anxiety, pain. Um, She's prescribed Vicodin for her C-section, all sorts of surgeries. Um, And after a while, she just these are the one constant in her life and the thing that actually helps her continue through all these hardships. Um, And then her scripts run out, um, which is often the case. And unlike some other people who may have more social or financial capital and have ways to um, re-up their script when it runs out, she didn't. Um, And so she started, she, a friend helped her um, get access to some Xanax um, and then uh, she gets access to someone suggests meth as a way um, to uh, keep up her energy. And so we see how there ends up this blurry line between so-called legal and illegal drugs. Um, and so she ends up arrested um, when she they find uh, I think she was speeding. Um, she gets pulled over by an officer. They find a pill bottle that doesn't have her name on it. And um A series of events, she ends up incarcerated. And so the story, I think, really illustrates um, just this really devastating story um, of somebody's life and all the hardships they face and how our approaches to um, helping these people end up hurting them even more um, so that she's not receiving the support she needs um, as a mother, as a child, um, as a spouse. Um, and instead she's just further punished. Um, she's punished, um, in terms of, um, the prescription and then withdrawal of those prescriptions and then the criminalization, um, of her situation and ending up, um, incarcerated. So, um, I open with that story just because I think it really illustrates, um, how complicated these issues are, and humanizes these issues. Um, and and sort of counters this notion of, well, there's these these bad people, these addicts um, who need to turn their lives around without seeing how a lot of our institutions are failing um people. And it's the these failings that are then further exacerbating and harming um, people like Lindsay.
1: Now, this really um, is is a connection going on between medicalization and criminalization. Can you explain that?
0: Sure, absolutely. So it might be helpful to start off with um, some definitions. Um, so I, I, said that I do a lot of research on medical sociology and medicalization, um, and medicalization is the process by which, um, previously non-medical events become medical events, um, medical events that require a doctor to diagnose and to treat, um, often involving pharmaceuticals, um, but not always, um, We can think of um, attention deficit disorder as an example, Um, people who children um, previously being understood as uh, being restless or not being able to sit still or pay attention for um, some time and increasingly has become a medicalized diagnosis. Um, And relatedly, um, criminalization refers to things that become criminalized um, that may not have been criminalized before. And we can see some things that become criminalized and then become decriminalized. Um, Recently, um, all um, issues with marijuana um, were previously criminalized and then decriminalized. Um, But we can think of uh, similar related to this book about addiction, um, this term um, uh, that underwent initially this idea. It was a, sort of a religious idea of this is a moral failing. And then we see the transition from addiction being treated as this moral failing to being this criminal uh, behavior. So that this is um, uh, a sign that someone is is breaking the law. Um, and increasingly in our society, we see how um, substance use is being medicalized, um, that Um, Actually, addiction is a a medical diagnosis that requires treatment rather than punishment. And so this seems like this humanistic development of um, we're no longer punishing people for substance use, um, that we're treating them for substance use, Um, when in fact, a lot of our approaches are still very punitive. Um, They're tied to the carceral systems, for one, Um, but they also... um, They're coercive, um, that they don't um, allow people to um, choose whether or not they receive this treatment. It's, well, you either need to serve time uh, as prison or serve time in a treatment center when um, these two are often very similar in nature. And uh, this is sort of related to Michel Foucault's argument about um, discipline and punishment um, that In the prison setting, the focus is on the body, Um, the focus on controlling the body. You are um, isolated to a prison cell um, that you can't move um, to see your family and outside of um, that setting. And the treatment approach um, goes deeper. It, it, it wants to control the mind. Um, and I, I saw this in these interviews, talking to people, as I sort of described in the beginning, who described themselves as, well, an addict's just an addict. I'm a junkie. Um, I have an addictive personality. It's to my core. It's in my genes. And I, I, I can't undo it. Um, and so they've They've internalized this notion of who they are because that's part of the so-called treatment um, and so in terms of this relationship between medicalization and criminalization, there's a number of different ways these work um, as I described this idea of either or that you can either go to prison or go to this treatment system so this is how they are intertwined but also how um increasingly these two things are collapsed that substance use is, it's medicalized, it's treated as though this is a medical condition rather than a criminal condition, but it's still treated under these criminal, uh, or these carceral systems by drug courts, um, by these, um, coercive treatment programs. Um, and it, in a lot of ways, this, um, uh, ends up using sort of essentialist logic. Um, so unlike, uh, a a criminal sentence that, um, you, you serve your time and then, um, you're done, um, which obviously is not exactly the case, um, with our system of, uh, felonies and people who are barred from treatment or barred from, um, voting and other rights as a result of, um, their time. But the, the medicalization of someone's substance use, it, it becomes this permanent um, element of their identity that they can never not be an addict and never not be a junkie. And as this is fused with the criminal system, they can never not be a criminal addict. Um, So they are, it's sort of essentializing this notion of they are forever an addict and forever a criminal. And so these two systems, instead of this transition becoming more humane, um, and, um, treating people with dignity and respect is actually doing the inverse. And that's sort of, um, one of the stories that I try and tell in this book.
1: Now you also gave us profiles of who's more likely to be arrested for opiates and cocaine and all of those drugs. Tell us about that profile.
0: Well, um, I mean, I think, uh, a lot of people um, who may be listening to this um, may be aware that um, substance use is actually pretty, roughly the same amongst um, racial groups. Um, and yet the policing and surveillance of um, different groups is, it's not the same. Um, and so um, across the board for all of um, these substances, um, black people are more than double, um, sometimes as high as 10 times as likely to be arrested um, on drug charges overall. Um, this is true um, for heroin and, and cocaine and opiates as well. Um, and so this is sort of at the heart of the issue of who's more likely um to use and who's more likely to um be arrested. And this relates to, um, what communities are under greater police surveillance. Um, so if there's more police officers, um, looking for crime, they will find more crime. Um, and so then it becomes a high crime rate area, not because there's actually more people engaged in this behavior there. It's because there are people looking for it there. Um, so, uh, Across the board, we see um, particularly Black and Latinx um, people are more likely to be um, arrested for these issues, um, despite the fact that white people um, are just as likely to be using um, these substances. And uh, in terms of uh, sex and gender, um, similarly, um, uh, I found that a lot of people even perceived that it was... More commonly, uh, more common that white women uh, were using opioids than um, other populations, um, but that they weren't being arrested for it because white women are much less, le- much less likely to be surveyed and arrested and incarcerated um, in general.
1: Now, let's back up. Tell us about the interview process, the people you uh, interviewed in Missouri.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah. So this was a very long process. Um, We needed to get uh, a lot of permissions from the state. Um, We worked with the wardens of the specific facilities um, to engage. Um, This was a multi-site process. Um, So we started by getting um, a lot of permissions. Um, We also got um, our permission um, from um, the DOJ, um, a certificate of confidentiality because it was really most important to us to protect the identities of the people we were talking to. Um, and so um, we used a waiver of documentation of consent rather than um, a a, consent, a traditional consent form. Um, and this waiver enables people to participate without signing their names. Um, and so there was no way to know who, um, participated. Um, and, uh, we did, there was, uh, linkage initially, um, with uh, the survey, I'll walk us through the survey and the interview component, but, um, in terms of who was paid, so who participated, um, but from almost immediately, we were unable to identify who said what, Um, and we also received this, um, certificate of confidentiality so that, um, when we were walking out of the prisons on the couple days before things were de-identified that no one could subpoena, um, our, uh, our transcripts or our, um, recordings, um, and use anything that people said, um, against them. And so, again, this was very important, um, and this is something I really grappled with, um, in terms of doing research with incarcerated people, um, that this is inherently a coercive environment. Um, and so despite the fact that we might say, um, you have every right to stop, you this is voluntary, you don't have to participate. Um, I, we need to recognize that we are people who are coming in um, with these credentials as um, professors, and we are we have permission of the wardens and um, other authority figures in the prison settings. And so there may be a lot of people who feel as though they have to participate, that this is going to impact um, how they're perceived. And so this is something I really struggled with um, in the research, because um, I think at the same time, we know that a lot of incarcerated people, they're silenced, um, that this is intentional, they aren't um, allowed to vote, um, they often aren't able to tell their stories of what happened inside or outside of prisons, and um, that this is really important um, to be able to challenge the narratives and the things that um, are suppose, supposed to improve Um, these systems, we're not listening to the people who are impacted by them. And so this was um, really a focus, a lot of these interviews about how they think um, these systems should work. And so I thought it was really important to talk to them, but also recognizing that I want to protect them above all else and prevent any coercion above all else. And um, so we started off by um, sending out a a double-sided survey, um, to, uh, inmates at a number of, um, facilities and, um, they could respond about how they used different, um, substances and they were compensated $5 for, um, this, um, um, survey. Then based on that survey, um, we, we collected them. They were in a lockbox that nobody had access to, um, and uh, in a day's time, we identified people based on those um, interviews or those surveys, people who might be helpful to do, conduct an interview with. And so, we conducted these um, hour to two long two hour um, interviews um, based on those responses. And so, these people who were invited to do an interview um, were compensated twenty dollars. And these figures sound very low, Um, and yet we were also um, told um, that these figures could be very high. These could be coercive figures because these um, uh, people who are incarcerated are paid pennies um, for work. This is a major issue in our country as well um, in terms of prison labor and how people are exploited and paid not just below the minimum wage, but below what we would people in um, other countries um, are paid um, and they have no other option. So they will so-called consent to this work because it's um, paid so much below um, or it's the only thing that they can make. And so, again, this was something that we um, were challenged, um, that this was the figure of $20 um, was a coercive sum of money, that there was no way they could say no. Um, Yet, we pay people outside of um, prisons $20 and $40 for an interview. And so it felt in um, just to um, compensate them less. And so $20 for an hour of their time um, uh, feels appropriate if that's what we're doing outside of the prison setting. So again, these are very complicated um, issues and unfortunately it doesn't feel like Um, there's a right answer um, at times. And this was something I struggled with about writing this book at all, um, that I wanted to tell um, these stories, especially people who took the time to share this with me and who really wanted to um, have input into um, these systems, but also this feeling of uh, I'm exploiting um, them, that I'm using their stories um, in these ways. And um, so I think... Probably anyone who's engaged in qualitative research um, who has a heart, um, who wrestles with some of these ideas, Um, but doing this in the carceral setting particular, I think is particularly challenging, Um, and um, I tried to do my best, and I feel like I learned a lot through the process, and I hope that this book does promote some of the changes um, that will make their lives a little better, or people who are in similar um, situations make them less harmful.
1: Now, one of the nuggets that you covered in your book was the number of people who have experienced a parent, spouse, child, or sibling in jail. Tell us about that.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think... Some people think of prisons as this faraway thing that it doesn't impact their lives. Um, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, it's actually designed this way. Like the reason that prisons are in these remote areas, that they're barred off, that they're so hard to get to and for people to visit is to remove them from our social imagination. Um, and so we don't have to think about people over there because they're not people. Um, they're not a part of our society, they're not our citizens, they don't vote, they don't matter. Um, And so we see lots of ways that this is intentionally designed. Um, And there's also a lot of shame around incarceration, that um, if someone's arrested, um, that they often don't share that with a lot of people. And this is something that is culturally produced. Um, And so it's something that um, individuals hide, that families hide, communities hide, because it feels like it's, again, this transition from this was a religious moral failing to now it's a criminal failing. Um, but that, that moralization is still there. Um, there's this idea that, well, if you've been arrested, it's because you're a bad person. Um, you've been arrested because you've done something harmful to other people um, with intent um, and that you deserve it. Um, rather than um, they were people looking for crime um, and you were someone who they were looking for in particular. So there's a lot of shame around um, prisons and incarceration. And so as a result, um, people uh, keep a lot of this to themselves. And the, the numerical reality is very different. Um, almost half of people in the U.S. Um, have um, experienced either the incarceration of a parent, uh, spouse, child, sibling, um, a family member. Um, and so this is something that impacts us all. Um, and at the same time, it also disproportionately impacts communities of color. So another reason why some people may feel as though it's this distant is because if they're white, if they're affluent, um, they are less likely to, um, be personally impacted or, um, have a close family member impacted because again, they have that financial and social capital that can get them out of, um, uh, that arrest out of serving time, paying off, um, uh, their, their bail, what have you. Um, so, uh, black adults um, are much more likely to, I think, twice as likely as um, white adults to have an immediate family member incarcerated. Um, Latinx individuals, similarly, um, I think 70% more likely than whites um, to be locked up for more than a year. And so this has really devastating impacts on the individuals themselves. But as we know, their families and their communities, um, removing um, a parent, many children grow up without parents, um, and this impacts them financially, um, but also impacts them in socially and emotionally and psychologically, um, whether they're, uh, they're, they're cared for by another family member or they're put in foster care, which is um, just devastating for everybody involved. Um, and so it decimates communities, families, and individuals, um, in different ways. And, Again, this is something that is constructed as this far-off issue that doesn't impact people um, in part because people may not feel comfortable speaking out about it um, because there's intentionally this shame that's shrouding these conversations.
1: Now, another nugget, you talk about the high rates of juveniles um, in Missouri that are in custody. Is there a connection between juvenile custody and the number of people who are prescribed all drugs, such as Xanax?
0: Um, you know, um, I can't infer causality from my data and I don't have, um, sort of those numbers on hand, but, um, we do know uh, sort of one of the things that is very clear, um, from these stories is how trauma and adverse effects are increasingly medicalized in our society. Um, so they are, um, uh, People are prescribed Xanax or similar um, tranquilizers or sedatives um, to manage that trauma and anxiety. Um, and a lot of people who are incarcerated, particularly as children, have experienced a lot of trauma and abuse. And that's um, a, a lot of the reason why they end up um, in those situations. Again, punishing rather than supporting and helping um, these kids. And again, this sort of so-called humanistic approach is, well, we're going to give them this support in the form of a pill. Um, And yet um, this pill may end up being something that they are eventually criminalized for and then sort of extends their custody from juvenile um, uh, custody to incarceration as an adult.
1: You make the argument that social problems are a product of the environment Tell us about these social problems.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um I think this is sort of in relation to how a lot of these things are treated as biological problems um, that um require um medical treatment, that um someone who is suffering from anxiety and depression and um all sorts of medical diagnoses. Um, uh, over 50% of people who are incarcerated are diagnosed with some sort of uh, mental health um, issue. And um, this all speaks to the ways that we treat these things as, well, this is something individual level, um, that it's something you individually are struggling with and that um, that's not Incorrect, um, but that it's not something that's produced by the environment, the social environment, um, and so um, these things are produced by poverty, by racism, by sexism, heterosexism, um, in the form of um, housing um, insecurity and. Um, the inaffordability of childcare and healthcare and education, um, or the exposure to violence, um, that these are, um, things that are produced by our, um, society by divesting in communities, by not providing people with support, um, financial or social support, um, in these ways. And so people experience trauma, the trauma of, um, uh, poverty and discrimination. And um, then we sort of offer this Band-Aid fix of, well, we can offer you this pill to treat this, um, which can result in more problems, um, but really most um, significantly diverts our attention from the real source of these problems, um, the the lack of a social safety net um, and the lack of support um, and a sort of invigorating environment, um, for people, particularly communities of color, um, and, uh, already poor, um, communities. Yeah.
1: Now from your interviews, did you find that medicine and prison work together in some way?
0: Yeah. And so that's kind of what I talked about in terms of, um, these sort of forced treatment, um, programs. So we see some ways this, um, a false choice of, um, serve, time in a prison versus time in, um, a, um, treatment facility. But also, um, this is actually the subject of, uh, a, a wonderful book written by the soci- sociologist, um, Anthony Hatch, um, called silent cells, um, the secret drugging of captive America. And, um, Hatch argues that, um, medicine, particularly psychotropics, are this essential technology that are used to subdue and control institutionalized populations. So um, that prisons would actually not be possible were it not for the drugging of um, the people in there. Um, And so that is something that I saw also in my interviews, um, talking to people who um, we're prescribed lots of these medications in a carceral setting, um, and then those end up being um, the substances that they use non-medically um, uh, once they're released, and then will in turn be reincarcerated for. And um, so we see how this just becomes this perpetuating cycle. Um, and again, that it's, um, medicine is treated as this more humane quote unquote alternative, um, when in fact it's really a linchpin of prisons and the, the recidivism, um, cycle that many of, um, incarcerated people experience.
1: In chapter two, you talk about a case, um, the lady's name is Penny. Tell us about her road to addiction.
0: Um, sure. Um, yeah. So Penny, um, was similar, um, to Lindsay in terms of just experiencing a lot of trauma growing up. Um, she was abused, um, by both her parents, um, her father, um, uh, used a lot of substances. Um, and during all of these times, similar to Lindsay, she was prescribed a lot a lot of medication. Um, she describes Percocet and Xanax and Darvacet and Vicodin and, um, just to, um, mitigate all sorts of, um, psychological, emotional, and physical, um, abuses. And, um, then she ends up giving birth, uh, via cesarean section, given, um, many more pain pills. Um, and after this series of, um, prescriptions and using for a long time, she finally is no longer prescribed, um, these pills and she experiences intense withdrawal, um, which, um, lots of people describe as the sensation of drowning that, um, you can't breathe. Um, and this is the way, um, a, a lot of these medications are designed. Um, and yet she's offered nothing to help her, um, with this. And so she just becomes desperate, um, to get, um, to get more and doesn't really know how to go about it. And the only way she knows how to go about it is um, through a doctor um, because that's the way she's historically gotten this when she has been beaten by her father or mother. Um, And so she describes how she would ask someone to hit her with a baseball bat um, or climb up in a tree and fall out of it. Um, So cut herself with a knife, um, whatever she can to injure herself in ways that are obvious so that she will go to the emergency room and someone will give her a prescription, um, for this pain. And I think her story illustrates just how painful withdrawal is, um, because someone could imagine, well, why would you intentionally throw yourself out of a tree? Um, and it, it, it really, it really illustrates the magnitude, um, just how intense, Um, this withdrawal can be, and that she would prefer to have this to be able to get access to um, those pills than to um, experience that drowning. So um, she was one of these more extreme stories, um, but really, I think, gets at the heart of just how challenging it is um, struggling with the, the physical pain, the withdrawal symptoms, um, for things related to depression and anxiety and, uh, physical pain, um, and just the lengths at which people will go, um, in order to, um, survive, um, that it really is about survival, um, above all else.
1: Now, many of the people you interviewed said that their road to destruction started with a doctor's visit. What did you find there?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think Penny's case and Lindsay's case um, sort of reflect that, that there were a number of people. Um, Betsy was another um, person who I wrote about. And um, she she said specifically that uh, the doctor wrote her this uh, prescription for opioids and then ruined her life. Um, that, um, that a lot of um, people said that I, I didn't even think that I needed something, whether it be opioids or um, a sedative or tranquilizer, or something for, um, again, emotional, psychological, physical pain, um, and that they weren't receiving the support that they needed. Um, they weren't um, being provided a living wage um, or childcare, or education or job opportunities or housing um, or any of the things that they ultimately needed, a uh, protection from violence. Um, and again, this is these are well-intentioned people who are providing them with these scripts, but um, they felt as though this prescription didn't help their situation. Um, in fact, it just made it worse. Um, and so again, it's, it's not that the drugs themselves are necessarily bad, that these are really important drugs that help a lot of people. Um, but that are over reliance on them and use of these, um, uh, substances in place of those sort of, that sort of necessary structural support and social safety net, um, Causes a lot of harm for the people that I spoke to.
1: Now, you also said that there were lots of correlations between low wage jobs and pain. Uh, Can you tell us about this in regards to the Medicaid eligibility in the state of Missouri?
0: Um, So, I'm not quite sure about the Medicaid eligibility. What do you mean about that? Well,
1: you talk in your book about there were lots of people who were not eligible for Medicaid, and they had some type of accidents or suffered in terms of a low-wage job. They could not get health care.
0: Okay, okay. So, yeah, so... Um... Uh, these interviews were also conducted before um, a lot of people had access to um, healthcare through um, the uh, ACA. Um, and so there were a lot of people who didn't have access um, to healthcare through their jobs, which is primarily the way that um, people in the US were getting access um, to healthcare. And um, a lot of low wage jobs result in pain. Um, And they're also the jobs that don't offer um, health care, which is both preventative health care and treatment of problems. And so um, there are a lot of risk factors of low wage jobs, a lot of repetitive motion, um, physically strenuous labor, just being on your feet all day, um, lack of paid sick leave, that people work through even when they're experiencing injuries um, uh, or exhaustion because they need that paycheck to pay their bill, um, that they are living paycheck to paycheck. And um, as a result, they their pain just intensifies um, over uh, time. So, um, yeah, there were many stories of people um, that I – that I spoke to who were in these low wage jobs and um, they described how they didn't have time for doctor's office visits, um, but also they didn't have time for all the other things that can help um, with your health in terms of cooking, in terms of sleeping, um, exercise. um, And instead they just were experiencing a lot of pain that could result in all sorts of injury and exhaustion um, that, can cause their body and mind to break over time.
1: You talk about a 27 year old who saw the doctor at the workplace and that's how she was prescribed medication. Did you find that? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, yeah. The, I, I, her name was Rachel, um, and she described how she worked at a factory seven days a week, 12-hour shifts, and just these repetitive motions of being exhausting, um, and how she was prescribed uh, medication by a doctor on site, um, and that that was um, a common practice um, at the factory where she worked um, and I think it really illustrates that um, these employers um, recognized that it was not sustainable for an employee to be working seven days a week, 12-hour shifts. Um, but instead of reducing their hours, increases their pay so that they don't have to work um, all of those um, time, that the solution here was to medicate, um, to sort of dull this pain, um, which we know pain is an indication to us that there's something wrong. Um, That it's something before we break. Um, And so you can medicate um, this pain, and then it just results in breaking someone. Um, But in the United States, um, labor is often disposable, especially people in low wage jobs. And so um, that was not... um, a concern of the employer because they know, well, if I break this one person that there's always someone else who's willing to come. And so, um, this is how people end up in these terrible situations and, um, Rachel describing this, um, uh, really illustrates this point. I also must note that, um, all the names that I'm using are that are used in the book are pseudonyms. Um, so none of these are their actual names, um, but they were ways for, me to remember um, their stories. Um, but the way that things were de-identified, I wasn't able to tell who was who, um, within hours after conducting the interviews, um, themselves.
1: Another event, childbirth, you talk about how this could develop into addiction. Tell us about Kate.
0: Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah. So as I said, that uh, my background is in um, medical sociology and medicalization and um, the medicalization of childbirth is something that a lot of medical sociologists have paid attention to, um, as well as the medicalization of motherhood, um, that prescribing pills to new mothers has become increasingly the norm, um, in part because childbirth is treated as this medical event. Um Over 99% of uh, births, childbirth today in the U.S. take place in a hospital Um, and over a third end up in a C-section, which is more than double what the World Health Organization recommends in part because a C-section is a major surgery um, and requires um, quite a bit of recovery and can have a lot of adverse effects um, for mother and child. Um, And so a number of, um, the, the people that we spoke to, particularly the, the mothers, um, talked about, um, this event of childbirth and how they had been prescribed, um, pills for recovery of the physical childbirth, um, but then also for emotional and psychological, um, recovery, um, and that those prescriptions ended up, um, causing harm, that um, many of them were struggling, um, that it's really challenging to be a parent, particularly a mother in the United States where we don't have guaranteed um, paid time off, um, particularly for um, low wage mothers um, that poor and working class mothers are much less likely to have any time paid time off um, to spend with their children. And the U S is um, one of the only industrialized nations not to provide this um, to mothers, but in addition to provide affordable childcare, um, psychological support. Um, and again, often the one thing that's um, provided for them is um, a prescription, but only for a short period of time. Um, and so you, you asked about Katie. Um, she was, um, uh, one of these people I spoke to and she, she had her first child at 14. Um, she was kicked out of her house. So she was particularly alone. Um, and she was prescribed, uh, pills. She she gave birth via emergency C-section. Um, so she was prescribed Percocet um, for a long time. Um, and then she's prescribed a variety of other pills to support with her anxiety and her depression that she was a kid on her own trying to raise another kid um, and without any of the support. Um, and she did anything she could to um, get... Um, access to these pills once her prescription ran out, which ended up in her being arrested and um, serving time. And so again, this is um, somebody who didn't have the support they needed and was punished for not having the support they needed.
1: You talk about this case, three kids all by myself, no job, no ride, living on $200 a month. What does this describe?
0: Um, I mean, I think it describes um, just how undersupported um, people are in our society. Um, I think this story was the story of Betsy, um, who... Uh, Similarly, she was trying to survive on her own. She describes how she was living at $200 a month, um, that our um, social safety net is abysmal, that, um, that even this notion that you could get by on um, unemployment benefits, on um, child welfare support, that it's impossible. Um, and um, that instead of supporting um people and providing them with the support they need to raise their kids, to support themselves, to get back on their feet, um job training programs, um uh, stipends, housing, um healthcare that um they're often just punished um through the carceral system um, or uh, sort of this Band-Aid approach of, I can write you a script, uh, and maybe that'll help manage some of your pain. Um, when, um, from Betsy's perspective, it was that prescription that made everything worse. She was just getting by. Um, and, um, then once she was written, um, uh, prescription for Xanax, in addition to, um, pain pills that, um, just everything fell apart um, because of her desperation to get more
1: nugget in your book. You talk about the medications that were prescribed to white women. What type of women are prescribed these drugs and why?
0: Um, well, I think we all are prescribed drugs. Um, I, I think there's um I'm not sure um, specifically what um, data uh, you were interested in, um, but I think related to this notion of mothering, um, that historically um, affluent white women have been prescribed a a whole sort of, um, drugs to support this ideal of, um, mothering, um, that in the sixties, um, we saw, um, mother's little helper, um, prescribed to, um, to mothers to help them sort of manage, um, all of the responsibilities that are required of mothers, um, that without, again, the, the support um in terms of childcare in terms of um housing in terms of all of these things that mothers are expected to do it all and um so that um and if mothers in terms of their isolation um in terms of this pressure on them to do everything that um they can commonly experience anxiety and depression and Um, so there's this long history of, um, medicating, um, these mothers, um, and saying that you need to have an appropriate level of emotionality, um, that you can't be too depressed and dull, but also not too angry about, um, the injustice of the situation. And so there is a long history of, um, uh, medicalizing and treating white women um, with um, prescriptions for uh, even the, the again, talking about medicalization of issues, um, the idea of hysteria, um, that women who were challenging the system, that they were hysterical um, um, rather than justly angry about um, the situation. And so um, this sort of intersects with increasingly how all mothers are medicalized, um, in terms of who has greater interaction with healthcare systems, um, and people who have more interactions with healthcare systems are going to experience that medicalization. Um, but who has the power to challenge that medicalization, um, to say, I don't want to take those pills, or if they want them to continue to use them, um, and get a doctor's prescription so that they are, um, so that they are doing it legally, um, versus, um, other mothers who are, um, who don't have access. Um, they either don't have the power to, um, to, to challenge, um, that medicalization or to maintain access, um, to that medicalization and also how they are similarly held to these, um, impossible ideals that are impossible for the affluent, um, woman who has access to financial support, to access to all sorts of, um, support in their mothering process. Um, and they also are unable to meet these ideals, but then, um, for the people who don't have access to all of those resources, um, that these are completely impossible ideals
1: is it easier for some people to navigate the spaces where they're labeled criminal addict than somebody else?
0: Well, oh, I don't, I don't really know. Um, well, you talk I, about I, these two brothers
1: that may give us the example as to what.
0: Um, sure. Yeah. So Um, I think you're referring to James um, and his brother. Um, James uh, was incarcerated for um, his non-medical prescription drug use, and um, he describes how um, he was introduced to um, these drugs through his brother. Um, Both of them worked in manual labor, really strenuous jobs, suffered a lot of injuries, and his brother said, this can help you, um, um, uh, manage the injuries, but manage the daily exhaustion. And so he started using, um, and he ends up getting caught as he's serving time. Um, and in the interview, he describes how his brother was just this upstanding guy. Um, and that James, James, he's like, I'm an addict, I'm an addict and a junkie, unlike my brother. Um, and, um, the only difference between him and his brother is that he was arrested. Uh, so he was arrested and that he was forced into this treatment program that told him you're an addict, once an addict, always an addict. Um, this is in your biology, um, and, um, that you're a criminal. Um, so not just an addict, um, and, um, his brother, didn't experience that. Um, and his brother was able to hold down his job because he wasn't arrested. Um, and so it was interesting in terms of how James made sense of it, that he said, well, um, the reason I'm here is because I'm an addict and because I, I do these bad things. Um, when his brother did all the same things, he just wasn't arrested for them. And, that he was a great dad, um, he was a great brother, um, that um, James was all those things too until he was arrested. And so it was the process of incarceration and criminalization um, that then, again, talking about this Foucaultian, um, that the punishing of his body, but also the punishing of his psyche, that he internalized and convinced himself that he is this bad person,
1: After writing this book, what is the message you want the reader to leave with?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, There's a lot of messages. Um, I think that ultimately people need more social support above all else. They need financial support, social support, um, that we are, um, we intensify um, harm for. The already marginalized in our society, um, and that this idea of a medical approach to um, some of these issues—that this is um, doing less harm—is really this false, this false notion um, that in fact um, this can intensify harms, um, particularly when it's linked with our um, carceral um, systems. So, um, I think what I would want people to take away is um, to recognize that these are very complicated issues. Um, Obviously, if there were a simple solution, we would already be there. Um, But that the criminalization of poverty, um, the criminalization of the injustices people are already facing um, is only making matters worse um, rather than helping uh, people
1: well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
0: Sure. Yeah. So as I said, I do research related to medical sociology and um, resistance and social movements. So I have two projects. Um, One, um, that similarly um, came out of this um, hearing sort of the stories of people's housing struggles. Um, there is a, a local um, grassroots organization called Kansas City Tenants um, who is fighting for um, housing justice. Um, and so I've been doing work with them um, recently. And then I have another book project about um DIY science, um, so similarly related to this book about how people use um, medicine and science on their own um, in ways to resist systems um, and um, how this reflects sort of inequities and issues with existing institutions um, and systems related to medicine and healthcare. care. Um, so those are two separate book projects that I'm hoping to... out in the next few years.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to those. Thank you again for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate these thoughtful questions and for you taking the time to read the book and talk to me today.
1: Thank you.